Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 87. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy. Today on the show, we're going back to the investor side of the business. I'm delighted to welcome Chris Johnson. He is a managing director at Prospect Capital Management. And Prospect have been a a significant investor in this space now for many years. So we wanted to get Chris on the show just to talk about their approach, talk about the platforms they invest in, how they do due diligence. And we also talk about a new initiative that they have coming up here later this year. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be here. Yeah, let's get started. I want to give some of the listeners a bit of background about yourself. You've got a you've got a fairly interesting background. It seems you were you started off. It sounds like in the navy, and then you made your way to Wall Street. Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, how you've uh, your career and how you've come to this uh, this time? Sure. Well, first of all, what I do now is I I run the online investing business at Prospect Capital Management, mm-hmm. uh, which is the external manager to Prospect Capital Corporation. To date. What we've done, and we'll get into it in more detail, is we've invested in online originated consumer and SME loans. Taking a step back, my background is mostly credit. In between college and my uh, MBA at Darden at the University of Virginia, I was a nuclear submarine officer on a fast attack submarine and qualified as a nuclear engineer by naval reactors. That's not necessarily a credit background, but uh, <laughs> I, think risk, it's a risk background background, for, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a good background for attention to detail. Um, <laughs> Indeed. In, I started at Merrill Lynch in 1984 after my MBA. By 1995, I was running the Leverage Finance Group globally at Merrill Lynch, and I ran that until 2001. So Leverage Finance at Merrill Lynch at the time was high-yield bond underwriting, bridge loans, syndicated loans. And then I went to Deutsche Bank in the last decade, and I ran the restructuring, the media, and the telecom groups at Deutsche Bank. And then I came to Prospect Capital in 2012, where effectively I came over to the the buy side, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being a banker for almost 30 years. Right, right. Got it. Okay, so then you know you work at Prospect. Prospect are uh, a BDC, and I, not everybody understands exactly what that is. So, can you can you explain what a BDC is and how it uh, how it sort of is structured? Sure. So a BDC is um, the formal name is business development company. This was a form of uh, entity that was enacted in 1980 legislation. BDCs are investment companies under the Investment Company Act of 1940. What's interesting about a BDC is most BDCs elect to be called a regulated investment company, RIC. Effectively, what that means is as long as the entity distributes 90% or more of its income to its shareholders, and a BDC can be either private or public, uh, as long as it distributes that income, it does not pay federal income taxes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, view a BDC is a corporate finance version of an REIT. Right. And as a result, BDCs can be an attractive investment for an investor, whether it's retail or institutional that desires yield. 
And so you will see that most BDCs spend a lot of time investing in middle market lending and other yield strategies. Publicly traded BDCs, if you pull up a run on Bloomberg, you would see that they typically yield between 7 and 13%. Again, I'm making a generalization. Mm-hmm. But it is a yield-oriented vehicle, and it is when I say yield, it's really cash flow. It's a it's a distribution, right? So which means you've you 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 have you invest in in, in companies that pay you know pay dividends of of some kind or pay uh, or you get cash flows coming in. So can you? And I was, I was actually looking through some of your recent filings because you're a public company and you do have a. Quite a diverse portfolio. Can you just run us through some of the sure. investments you guys have? Sure. So we're a little bit different. Most BDCs, 80 to 100% of what they do is, is middle market debt lending. And this is partly because the banks have gotten out of the cash flow lending business since the 2008 crisis and the BDCs have gone into that vacuum. We're a little bit different. That's about half of what we do is middle market lending. Uh, the other half is we are always looking for yield-oriented investing themes that are always credit-based and always can create diversity for Prospect Capital Corporation, the BDC. Mm-hmm. So if you look at our filings, you'll note that we've been an active investor in CLO equity, which in our filings is defined, I think, as residual interests. We've also been very active in the topic that we're talking today, marketplace lending. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that in each of the CLO equity business and the marketplace lending is you can achieve uh, a relatively high current cash return or distribution, particularly from, you know, the time you make the uh, initially make the investment. Okay. So then can you share some of the platforms that you're investing on today in the marketplace lending space? Sure. So uh, we've been active since 2013. There are four platforms that we have invested in since that time. Prosper, Avant, Lending Club, and On Deck. We've been a very active investor in Lending Club, whether that's prime or near prime. Mm-hmm. You can find detail on our investments in our, in our 10Q for September 3016. And our fiscal year end is... June 30, 16. So there's also detail in that. We have spent a lot of time since really 2012 on the diligence standpoint, looking at both consumer and small business platforms. And we've diligenced over 50 platforms, substantially all in the US. The other thing that we invested in is back in the summer of 2014, we purchased a small business portfolio out of uh, direct capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, direct capital was being sold to CIT for its primarily for its leasing business, and we purchased that portfolio, which, which has subsequently been realized. Well, I also read that you you completed a, a, a securitization of lending club loans. I think that was some that was in Q4. Can you tell us a little bit about that deal? Absolutely, and I can I can discuss this publicly because of the information that's out there. There is a securitization tracker that has been published by Pure IQ recently, which which describes this. So there were there were eight marketplace lending securitization deals in the fourth quarter of 16. One of those was the one that we sponsored in October, which is called Murray Hill Marketplace Trust 2016 LC1. And what 
that was it's a securitization where it's 100% lending club near prime assets were put into the securitization vehicle. The deal was not rated. The collateral that was put in was $314 million of the collateral of the near prime loans. And we sold a Class A note and a Class B note to um, non-affiliated third parties. Mm-hmm. The private placement agent was Morgan Stanley. And our view generally on securitizations, we've been very active in the, in the credit markets for the last three years in terms of credit facilities, but that's floating rate debt. And we view securitizations as basically a form of fixed rate financing. So we felt it was time to do that. And as you'll note in the peer IQ tracker, the rates were uh, 4.19% on the A and 6.19% on the B note. Mm-hmm. So, so, so basically, most of the loans you are you are just doing a buy and hold strategy. It sounds like, but there's there's a portion that you're that you're taking off and, and doing a securitization. Is that do you, how do you decide what to buy and hold, what to securitize? So we historically we 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 buy and hold. I just I view still the securitization as a buy and hold. We retain we've retained in this one the equity residual. Okay. Yeah. And so it's fixed rate. We view it as fixed rate financing. Mm-hmm. So it still is is consistent with the theme that that uh, we're really a, a buy and hold investor. And then we um, this is very consistent with that. Okay. So yeah, I want to talk a little bit about uh, yeah, 2016, the year that was, and and at least I know you, could, you probably can't comment on the fourth quarter yet, but at least through Q3 of of 2016, did you? Did you increase or decrease your exposure based on some of the, the, the headwinds that the industry experienced in 2016? We, we increased our exposure overall. Not everything goes totally in a straight line, but just to give you some numbers out of our public information, to put this in perspective, at December 31 of 2015, the consumer assets that we own at fair value were $611 million. Mm-hmm. So if you put that as a marker, at September 30 of, I guess now I say last year, 2016, that fair value of consumer assets is $728 million. So over the course of nine months, we did increase our exposure. I think this is partly because we remain constructive on the asset class, uh, but also we view, as I've mentioned earlier, we view this as a, um, uh, a nice contributor to our, to our ability to create yield. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, so it's fair to say then that the pullback that the industry experienced, not just due to the lending club issues, you guys really didn't participate in that pullback, it sounds like. Well, we, I think that's fair on a secular basis. I will say, though, that we, like our peers, we re-underwrote every one of our platforms and spent a lot of time going back and re-underwriting risk and effectively everything that the platform does. Uh-huh. Um, one, one thing I would like to add to put this in perspective, we do as part of, if you look in our public filings, we do own certain companies and there are three notable companies in consumer finance that we own. And we treat, when we look at purchasing or going into a whole loan forward flow agreement, we essentially diligence the originator of those, those loans like we were gonna buy the company. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not buying the company, but we take the same care in terms of our diligence 
And so we did that again, obviously, when the pullback occurred, and we always continue to do that on a, on a continual basis. Right, right. Makes sense. Makes sense. So then I want to just talk a little bit about leverage. Do you use leverage in all your investments, in some? Um, and what's your, what's your approach to leverage? We use leverage in all of our investments except small business. Mm-hmm. Small business is a smaller, much smaller part of our portfolio. If you look, for example, in our September 30, 2016 10Q, the cost basis of our small business assets is $15.8 million. Right. But on the consumer side, we do use leverage in whether it's a credit facility, a warehouse financing, or as I said earlier, the, um, the securitization. Right. Okay. Okay. So then are you, I mean, you obviously interest rates have, uh, went up uh, recently. They, people are talking about, um, you know, interest rates going up, you know, two or three times, uh, in 2017. What, so how's that going to impact, you know, impact you guys and your approach to leverage? I'd say very, uh, a very careful look at it, but it, not, not being facetious. What's interesting about this asset class is the duration. Uh, of the three-year consumer loan, which has become really the predominant part of pretty much everybody's portfolio, is 14 months, roughly 14 months, mm. when you consider contractual amortization prepayments. So it's it's not as interest rate, not as much interest rate risk as maybe some other categories. Right. So we will certainly see some impact in it, but given the short duration we may see a little bit less impact. But LIBOR has certainly, obviously, as everybody knows, has gone up. Mm-hmm. And our credit facilities are floating rate. Okay. Okay. So then I wanted to talk a little bit about your approach to looking at these platforms. You said you went back and, re- and sort of redid your diligence on, uh, on a lot of the platforms. What does that look like? How do you – what's your approach to the due diligence that you do? Sure. So we – First, have a very detailed due diligence checklist, agenda items uh, that we send to the company. We're always looking for extreme transparency at the assets. We will not diligence a company if there isn't full transparency. And after the company gets those questions, we will go out, visit with the company, spend time with them. And I would also say to put this in perspective, make it more tangible, the marketplace lending platforms tend to have what I would call seven or eight functional areas that all have to work together to make the platform work. So whether it's regulatory compliance, underwriting risk, marketing, many other servicing collections, of course, we, we do on-site diligence with regard to all of those. And then obviously very important management technology. And then at the end of the day, the asset that that platform is originating has to meet our return requirements. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned credit earlier. We're generally either have a credit provider we're working with on this asset class or on that particular asset, or we're in discussions with it. So it all sort of has to fit together. I would tell you that we have diligence platforms as long as off and on for two years wow. before we've ended up going into the you know, we could diligence a platform and decide it's just a little bit too early, maybe from a data analytics standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say we've never diligenced the platform less than six months. It's a very detailed, ongoing process. Okay, so then, so 
you so you go in with your with your credit provider and so you know, by this, yourselves at the beginning, yes. Right, by yourselves, and then and then you you bring in your credit provider. So they've you've got to get they've got to be comfortable with the deal as well. It mm-hmm. uh, sounds like so. That's um, correct. But I guess by the time you bring them in, are you pretty confident that you know, having worked with these people, you know that it's going to be okay? I think the short answer is yes. We have some very deep relationships at the credit side, and. So, yes, I think the short answer is yes. We're not going to waste anybody's time, and they're not going to – I don't think they're going to waste ours. Right, right. So then you you said you've you've only invested in four. Are you you looking to expand that number, or is four – are you comfortable with adding just to the positions you have in four? No, we're we're looking to expand, and and let me put a little bit of background on this. I talked earlier about the BDC. We've also – and I – uh, welcome folks to get on the SEC Edgar website, but we have filed a closed-end fund called Prospect Marketplace Lending Corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we filed it in late October 2016. We filed Amendment Number One early this week, and it will be a a closed-end fund designed to invest in marketplace lending assets, primarily whole loans. So, in that regard, we are diligencing additional platforms that we could use as investments into this closed-end fund. Okay, so that's that's going to be a brand new entity. So I guess you're you're going to you you're not going to move existing assets into that, I no. presume. You're going to be you, all buying you new can't, assets. Right. It's all new assets. You cannot move the assets under the 1940 Act. The closed-end fund will be externally managed by Prospect Capital Management, which externally manages Prospect Capital Corporation. And it will be a, what I would just call it as a, you know, obviously because it's going to be substantially all marketplace loans, it will be a very focused fund. Right. Not unlike the, the main two that are out there right now. Okay. So is it, so it's going to be an interval fund then? Like- uh, it, it, we're still working through exact processes, but at a minimum, it's a closed end fund. Right, right, okay, mm-hmm. and so that's you know I, I had I had noticed that around. I was going to ask you that. So that's really, mm-hmm. I mean, that's great to have another another player there. I feel like we need more. We need more. One day we'll get an open ended fund, but uh, you know yep. probably, that's not going to happen anytime soon. I'm guessing, but uh, that's great to know that you're. And so that you said you, you you may end up with more than four platforms in there. That's that, that's fair to say. I think it's it's. That's speculative, but right. I think okay. it could be more than three. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll wait till we uh, wait till it actually yeah. launches. I mean, we are diligencing additional platforms. Right, right, okay, okay. So I, I want to talk just a little bit about you know, loan performance and something I'm sure that you're watching very, very closely. And you know, we, you know, I've noticed in my own personal portfolio that you know defaults some of the vintages in late uh, 2015 and um, and late 2014 have have not performed as well. I mean, what have you noticed in, in your portfolio? Our observations, are, and again, I have to be careful because this is public information, but our observations are not that different from yours. Right. And or from other, a few other websites that track this very closely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So obviously, given the fact you've increased it, your um, it's fair to say that you're you're not like overly concerned, or you feel like you're obviously you've, you've increased your assets in this yeah you know, in, in right. t- throughout 2016. So, are you sort of changing the mix of of loan grades, or is there anything you can share on that as far as your response to? to sure. Your- Again, if you look at our 
in our public filings, we have the breakdown of whether it's super prime, prime or near prime. It's the majority of our assets are near prime. That has, if you go back in our filings over the last two years, it's just edged up slightly, but it is over 50%. Mm -hmm. So we're still comfortable with that. I will say though, you know, we're always running recession scenarios. We've spent a lot of time on that in the last two years. Right whether it's mild recession, dramatic recession. So we're always doing that kind of data and analytics as I would expect other investment managers to be doing on this asset class. So then what is what is the view inside prospect on the economy for, for 2017? Do you guys have a perspective on what, what you think will happen? Well, we do not have a formal perspective. I would say that my perspective is not that different from the Fed the Fed has recently published projections for 2017 where there's going to be slight real growth as compared to 2016. And, and I feel that that, that is reasonable, mm-hmm. but that's my personal opinion. Right. Okay. Okay. So then what, so what's your view on the, on the overall industry as you know, we we're in a new year now and uh, we've put the, we've put the challenges of 2016 behind us. You know, what's, what's your view on the industry today? Are you, are you bullish on, on 2017? Yes, I am bullish. I I think that the industry, one of the big positives, I think the way that the industry, the ability for it to grow is it's going to have to continue to develop the securitization market. And I hate to keep coming back to that, but <laughs> if marketplace lending is going to continue to grow, the securitization market, particularly rated securitizations, is going to provide incremental third-party debt investors. Right. And I think the important thing about Rated securitizations is that it opens up to the insurance company market an easier way to invest in this asset class, mm-hmm. particularly, obviously, the Class A notes. Right. Right. And I feel like and that's, that has been a bright spot in 2016. And as you know, the PRIQ, uh, they just, you, know, the, the, they, you can see that we've had uh, tremendous growth in, uh, in the securitization market. So it's, it is a different, uh, it's different than the overall market. I feel like it, it has become more important. People, I think, are agreeing mm-hmm. with you that it is, uh, it is something that we need to, we need to focus on. So, uh, just another question just on a, a secondary market. I mean, is this, I'm, I'm curious to know whether your, your view on, on the secondary market beyond securitization, which obviously is its own form of secondary right. market, mm-hmm. is is because I this is what I, I sometimes think about the holy grail being the open ended open ended mutual fund, and you know it seems like a, a secondary market is one that is something that's really needed for something like that to happen. Is that I mean, what are your thoughts on a secondary market? Is that something that you think is is going to happen? Uh, it is it, it should happen. What where do you where do you stand on that? I think it. It will happen. I mean, it, it, it won't be any different than a whole number of other asset classes over the last 30 years. It has been fairly slow to develop, and I think that's primarily because of non-standardizations mm-hmm. of between platforms. I do think, though, in particular, and again, I guess I'm, I'm giving them a bit of a plug, but DVO1, for example, mm-hmm. is doing a lot to try to standardize data. Right. And so they're not necessarily front and center as I'm going to create a secondary market like some others. But I think the more standardization of data that we have, I think that will enable a secondary market to develop. So I know there's been some folks out there that have been trying to develop it. 
and maybe I, I give them credit for that, but I think there needs to be a little bit more standardization of data. But right. I think it will it will happen. Yeah, I, I I I hope so, and I think I think so as well. I feel like, and I was talking with Matt Burton the other day, and he was saying it's just for his company, it's just crazy how how different companies uh, store their data, and it makes it makes it much more challenging for investors uh, to compare apples to apples. Anyway, just about out of time here, but what are you working on personally now and, and, and for, for 2017? Is, are, you, are you working on the closed-end fund the most, or what's, what, what's on your plate for, for this year? We are spending a lot of time on this closed-end fund that I mentioned. We're also spending a lot of time, as we always do, on what I would call portfolio management, but I really, uh, that's really data and analytics. Mm-hmm. So I would say, and then as part of this closed-end fund, we're looking at a few new platforms. Right. Okay. Well, I'm, so is there, I guess you don't have an expectation of when it's going to be. I mean, some of the other closed-end funds took forever to, uh, to go through. You're still going through the SEC process, I take it. We're, we're still going through the process. Right. Okay. Well, anyway, on that note, I, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Chris. Great. And I appreciate the time. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Take care. See ya. I think it's great to see Prospect doing another closed-end fund. I think we need we need more of these of these funds in our space. And as I said, eventually we need a, an open-ended mutual fund because, as I see it, the way this asset class is really going to hit scale is that we need a way for you know everyday investors to be able to have a simple way to access the yield that this asset class offers and that the simplest way is through an ETF or an open-ended mutual fund now we're not there yet i think the closed-end mutual funds are a great way to start they uh, particularly you know those uh, individuals going through financial advisors that's uh, it's a way for them to access the asset class but for it truly to get scale, I think we're going to, we're going to need that open-ended mutual fund. I mean, the holy grail, as I see it, I feel like having, you know, Fidelity or Schwab having a, like a marketplace lending offering that when you go and sign up at your job, you can just check the box saying, yes, I want access to consumer credit or small business credit or just marketplace lending in general. Uh, I feel like that is, uh, the holy grail. We're not there yet. We're probably several years away from something like that. But I think when when we have something like something, an offering that is simple, that provides high yield, that provides permanent capital to the to the platforms, I think then we are going to see this this scale beyond the billions of dollars into the tens, even hundreds of billions uh, down the road. So, you know, it's not going to happen next year or even uh, before 2020 possibly, but it, I think when you look long term, that is the way the asset class is going to scale. Anyway, on that note, before I sign off, just want to give a quick reminder about the Lendit conference. It's coming up March 6th and 7th in New York. Uh, go to lendit.com if you haven't, haven't bought a ticket yet. I highly encourage you to do so. Everyone in the industry is going to be there. So on that note, I'll sign off. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.